Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, Lord, the, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word, and Lord, how you reveal your will and your desire for us as a church through your word. And so, Lord, today, um, use these two men, Lord, to be your mouthpieces. And would we be humble to receive the truth, Lord, that you are giving us through your word to strengthen us, to mold us, and to shape us, Lord, to be what you have called us to be. We ask this now in your name. Amen. Well, go ahead and take a seat at this time, and it is a privilege to be able to stand before you this morning and to be able to open the Word of God. Uh, this morning, as I was uh, getting ready, uh, I thought I need to get my uniform on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I work at a school, and I teach on a regular basis, and I'm an assistant principal, and one of the things that, that I realize is that every day I go to work, and I'm fully equipped for exactly what's gonna come my way and whatever I may have to do. And this morning, the same thing. I thought to myself, you know what? I wanna make sure that as I come in this morning that I have the right socks on so my feet aren't sliding in my shoes a little bit, you know? Uh, I wanna make sure I have the right shirt on because in case I get really nervous and hot up here, okay? I have short sleeves now and a little bit cooler, right? And so those were the things that I was thinking about when I was getting dressed. Um, and, and really, in one sense, it just kind of helps us understand a little bit of what we're going to be looking at today. And as we look at uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that's really kind of what it comes down to, is we're going to be understanding a little bit about what it means to be prepared, um, who we are, and how to get ourselves prepared. So um, today, the passage, though, that we're going to be looking at is also similar, though, to what we've been studying from Ephesians. And I think it's worthy to note that the letters to the early churches and the Roman Empire had some very similar tones to them. And the believers in these churches needed uh, instructional measures to help move them along in the faith. 
And of course, we're there today, aren't we? I mean, we still need instructional measures from God himself to move along today. Well, over the past four weeks, Pastor Rod has um, led us into um, an examination of Ephesians chapter 4. The sermon titles were uh, Theology for Unity, Gifts for Unity, Renewing Your Mind, and Putting on Christ. And perhaps in your home groups, um, you've had the opportunity to discuss those a bit, um, to think about those. I know that this past week, my home group, as we gathered together, um, we got towards the end of our time and meeting, and, uh, and I just, I, I had to mention this. I said, you know, um, these are reoccurring topics, it seems like, that keep coming out of the epistles, and I actually told them, I said, you know, on Sunday, when I get the opportunity to preach, these are some of the same things that are coming out of the book of Titus, and so uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at these things. There are three things here in particular um, that I want to point out first of all. Uh, The first one is the understanding of who our Savior is and what our salvation is. And, um, you know, I was uh, looking at Titus chapter 1 verse 2 and um, just kind of looking back and seeing in there how it talks about uh, that um, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Well, who is this God? And uh, I think there's an understanding that we kind of will talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes, but uh, we see this here in Titus also chapter 2, verse 11, uh, where it talks about the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 also say, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things that quickly kind of struck me was that, you know, this, this Savior of ours, he's mentioned here over and over again, just as he is in the other epistles. And there's an understanding of what our salvation is. Secondly, the gifts God has given to the believers to serve the church. And, you know, these are really important. We've talked about them on several occasions. In fact, over the last... Uh, couple of years, few years almost now, since the church started, we've been talking about the gifts that God has given in order to establish his church. Uh, Titus 1.3, uh, we went over this, uh, and it talked about the fact that uh, Paul says that at the proper time, uh, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Well, Paul was given the ability to preach, and that was to help establish the churches, to get churches going, to preach the gospel. Um, we can see also that uh, in Titus 1.5 and in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, um, there are statements here that talk about what Titus is supposed to be doing. Titus is to be teaching. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put things in order there. Um, chapter 2, verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so here's something that God said, you know what? I want Titus to be prepared for this. He's going to have this gift of being able to teach. Um, And then also, uh, we see uh, very clearly here in um, verse 5 again that he was told to put, uh, to appoint elders in every town. And as we've looked at uh, several different passages from the epistles, we've seen that this is something where God says, you know what, I'm going to give people gifts so that the church is established. Um, The third point that I kind of thought about and was reviewing here was the need to have our thinking transformed so that we smell and look different. And 
Last week, I remember in our home group as we were talking about this, about looking and smelling different. Um, and, and this is something that is applied throughout the epistles, isn't it? Uh, we see this in all three chapters here of Titus, where Paul is urging Titus to preach this to the believers as they wait for the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ. And, and in the meantime, until Jesus Christ comes, we are to be transformed in the way that we are thinking. And so as we uh, look at chapter 2 today, we're going to see that as well. Now, there is one, uh, one note, one caveat here to the uh, letter that is written to Titus here that is different uh, from Ephesians, and that is that uh, the language here um, is really directed towards Titus. Um, if we looked at the book of Ephesians, and you'll see there that it starts out with it's addressed to all the saints in Ephesus. But this letter here is addressed to Titus. And Titus, you have a job to do. This is what I want you to do. Well, it's been about three months since we last looked uh, into Titus, and I don't know how many of you were here on those two Sundays that we had the opportunity to do this, but um, this morning what I want to do is be able to spend a little bit of time reviewing and uh, also to present a flyover of these first ten verses in chapter two. And the reason that I want to do that is because uh, there are some men who will be preaching after me that are really going to kind of go into depth on um, chapter 2 here. Uh, let me just uh, tell you that, you know, I was thinking back when I was thinking about a flyover, I was thinking uh, when I was 14 years old, I remember that um, I got to go on my first flight, okay? I'd never been on an airplane before. And um, a friend of mine from church, he was like a big brother to me. Uh, he took me on a flight in a small engine plane. Um, and it was kind of on in the spur of the moment, you know, and um, I didn't tell my parents ahead of time. I didn't ask for permission. Uh, he was in his early 20s, and he was getting his flying hours in, and now he was approved to be able to take other people with him. And we went down to the Oakland airport, and uh, we got on a plane, and it's my first flight ever. I'm 14 years old. And there are two other guys that are with us, and we take off, and we start flying over the Bay Area. And we're flying over the East Bay. We're flying over the South Bay. And I can remember that he's pointing different things out to me. And uh, the first thought that I had is we kind of got higher and higher, and I'm just kind of looking out, is like, none of this looks familiar to me. None of it. As a 14-year-old kid, I hadn't really paid a lot of attention to what the drive was like, right? Your parents take you, and you just kind of sit there, and you just kind of go on the, on the road with them. But um, at this point, he's pointing out to us uh, these landmarks, these cities, these communities, and, and I was trying to put them into place and, and kind of have some sort of orientation for them. And it was a little bit confusing, but having that bird's eye view, after that, I remember that as I came back down to the ground later on, that it was something that really helped me. It helped me to be able to figure out where I was headed. What does East really look like, okay? What does South look like? Why is it called the South Bay, you know? As a kid at 14 years old, I didn't understand those things. But... I remember this, that um, as I got older too, that being able to um, fly um, around, to be on airplanes and go to different places, I always wanted to look out the window to see what it was like outside, even on our trip to Bolivia. I love to be able to look out uh, when we are getting closer to landing because we're coming down a little bit closer, and you can see what the terrain looks like. You can see the nuances of it. And for me, that is something that is that is helpful. For you, you, you may not really think of it that way. Maybe uh, today we have maps online, we have Google Earth, 
or maybe some other maps and photos to help give us pictures and a perspective that will help us navigate. Um, but that's a little bit of what we're going to do right now as we look at these first 10 verses, and then, like I said, later on, we'll examine these with a little more depth. One more thing that I'd like to just point out to you as we uh, move into this, and that is that um, verses 1 and 10 that we're looking at sort of have this top and tail um, to them. And that is where it says, what accords and what adorns. And so I just kind of want you to keep this in mind as we move uh, through this this morning. Uh, what is it that accords and what is it that adorns? Um, so just kind of reviewing a little bit, our theme for this book uh, was introduced as grace-based godliness in the life of the church. Uh, our brother Matt, um, who preached first, uh, the first message on Titus, uh, spoke about the transference of authority that went from God the Father, um, from Christ to Paul, uh, or God the Father to Christ, and then from Christ to Paul, and from Paul to Titus. And as we look into chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see that this is really important, okay? Because Titus has a big job that is before him that Paul has charged him with. And he needs to be able to complete this mission that Paul has left him to take care of. And that mission is to get the churches in Crete in order. So there was chaos that was there. Uh, Johnny helped us to see and understand the characteristics of godly leadership, mainly the appointing of elders. JD gave us the reasons why godly leaders are needed. And today we're going to be looking into chapter 2, which has instructions on the various ages and stages in life. And the bulk of today's passage narrows in on godly instruction for older men, younger men, including Titus in his role as a teaching pastor, for older women, younger women, and to slaves or bond servants about how they are to behave as a result of God's grace in their lives. And let me just also reiterate this, that when it does speak about uh, younger men or younger women, that also includes uh, what we would call today as teenagers. Um, and so this was a culture that did not have teenagers, as most of you are aware, uh, that has been somewhat of an American phenomenon that has spread elsewhere. And it's sort of allowed for uh, people that are in their teens to kind of feel like, well, they have their own group. But as most of you have become aware, though, this is something that is rather new as a phenomenon. So in this, we want to include um, those that are teenagers to be listening and to understanding what God has to say here. So um, as we move into uh, this first this, uh, chapter here, I've titled this section, Remember What Your Purpose Is. Remember What Your Purpose Is. It says in the first verse there, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And the verse starts with instructions for Titus, but as for you. And while this is the beginning of a contrasting statement, from what was said in chapter 1 in the previous chapter, it's also laden with a parent-like tone and command. And um, I remember that when I was a child, I heard that phrase more than a few times from my own parents. It's the phrase that a parent uses to communicate that, um, that now you're going to hear my instruction for you. Um, and you're going to follow it uh, because it is good for you. Or maybe it was that my expectations for you are not the same expectations that I have for another person or, or another group, but rather this is the way that the Castaneda family does things. And I know that I hear that every once in a while, you know, that other kids or other people get to do those things, and can I, you know, those kinds of things. And I, I definitely was one of those kids that, that looked at things from that perspective growing up. 
but I remember my parents saying, yeah, but that's not us, okay? Let's, let's kind of move on to who we are and the way we do things. And really, when you look at chapter one, you saw this, we, we looked at the fact that the Cretans were a certain way here. Um, it's also an imperative statement that is riveted with intimacy and expectations. It's a command, in other words. And the reason that Paul could be so direct with Titus was because he had served alongside of him on many occasions and for several years. In fact, Titus was take, uh, Paul had taken Titus with him um, to various places, in fact, even to, to say, you know what, uh, this whole idea of circumcision, look, here's a man that is with me, and he's not going to be circumcised. He's not a Jew. And so he had traveled many, many miles with Paul. And so um, as we just kind of think about this, that um, he had traveled alongside of him on many occasions and for several years, it was so much so that Paul called him my true child in a common faith in verse 4 of the first chapter. And that, that's pretty, pretty uh, I think it's, it's kind of an honor when you think about it. He says, he's my child. You are my child in a common faith here. Then in verse 5, he tells him, this is why I left you in Crete. And once again, the language is similar uh, perhaps to a father speaking to his son and letting him know what needs to get done. And in fact, the entire letter has instructions and explanations uh, for Titus as he was left in Crete with a job that was really very difficult. Um, and in fact, just to kind of underscore how difficult this job was, as, as Paul points out in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This is what surrounded Titus as he tried to put the church in order. This is what the surrounding culture was like for the believers in Crete. Now, in uh, chapter one, Paul had just finished writing about the Cretans, like I said, and their way of thinking and acting. And as you may recall, uh, Paul was rather blunt to get his point across about Titus and the urgency that was needed to get the churches in Crete in order. And this mission, I think, was probably pretty overwhelming. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've been placed in a few situations where things seem overwhelming. And when I talk with people about um, life and, and just, you know, what's going on, oftentimes it's not, you know, uncommon to hear people say, things are just so overwhelming right now. I, I'm just having trouble being able to kind of figure out what to do next. And, and I'm sure that some of you, as you've come in this morning, that's probably where you're at in some cases. What do you do when life becomes overwhelming, when you're given a job that is so big? Well, I think here that we're going to be able to see that as Paul says to him, hey, first things first, okay, let's get some elders into place. Um, and, and really, he gave a description of what kind of man was qualified to be an elder, and in the verses following the description of elders, Paul then warns Titus of what kind of men are not qualified to be in this position and to rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, what I just kind of see here is that as, as I review over this is that uh, really this is a job that is, you know, he needs instruction. He's been left there. Paul left. Um, Titus is on the island trying to figure out what to do here. Paul sends a letter to him, this is what needs to happen. And now that he has these instructions, he can, he can begin to kind of get things into order as he needs to. And so um, the first thing that I guess we can kind of state under this is really that he's told now to teach what accords 
with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, historically, Crete. Let me just give you a little bit of a background to this place. Uh, it was a popular destination for pirates. Uh, for about the previous 400 years, um, it was a place where pirates kind of inhabited the place. Uh, since its location as an island, uh, it's rather large by the Aegean and Mediterranean Sea there. Uh, pirates would come and land there, and so thus, when you kind of hear that phrase, um, that these are uh, lazy gluttons, evil beasts. Uh, one of the things that kind of struck my mind was a kid's video from a number of years ago, the pirates that don't do anything at all, um, Veggie Tales, you know? And I started to think about this. I was like, oh, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. You got these pirates that are kind of inhabiting this land for the previous 400 years. And so what happens, though, is that the gospel reaches this island after Pentecost. And as the gospel reaches this land, there are people who are coming back. They've heard the word of God. They've come back to the island. Um, they're there. They're Christians. But what do we do? And so, um, you know, now Titus is brought over. Titus is left. Here you go. You got a job to do. I've trained you. I've prepared you. And now here's the work that is before you. And so you have uh, Christians, though, that, uh, you know, for hundreds of years, People around them have been living in an ungodly way. So it wasn't a wonder that the Cretan church lacked church organization. And that's one of the, one of the main topics here that we're going to be looking at is church organization. They don't know the first thing about godly living. They needed to be taught what accords with who God is and what God does. So when Paul says in 116, uh, Cretans profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are unfit for any good work. Makes sense, doesn't it? They're, they're just not ready yet to do these good works. They're unfit for this. So the emphasis in chapter 2 is to show that godliness, acts of good works, come as a result of sound doctrine. Let me repeat that one more time. The emphasis in chapter 2 is to show that godliness, acts of good works, come as the result of sound doctrine. The key is that Titus must teach sound doctrine in order for the believers to do good works. Today, we're living in times where people profess to know God, um, but they deny him by their works too um, because they lack the foundation of sound doctrine, which links their actions back to what they believe. And the result is that people have formed worldviews upon what they believe. Um, anyone in here? Watch Seinfeld before? A few of you maybe, okay. Um, you know, I remember when Seinfeld first, you know, hit the, uh, the air and watching it. And, you know, it was kind of this, this unique setting that was really kind of different. In fact, I remember when I first watched it, I thought, I'm having trouble keeping up with really what's going on. Because they're like a scene here and a scene there and a scene over here. And, and really, I didn't understand what was going on until later. And I realized, you know what? Um, what we have are disjointed lives. People with these, these lives, with characters that are running around and they're being completely different people depending on the group that they were with. Uh, the fact is that most of the conversations that took place between uh, Jerry, George, Elaine, and Cosmo were based upon lies. Think back for a moment. How, you know, all of a sudden over here we're like this and over here we're like this and you know, even when they got together as a group, they're talking about 
what they were doing in those situations that were not truthful. Uh, lies that were being spun and how out of control their lies were getting at times. One of the main characters, uh, George, would often be overwhelmed by his situation because his lies were getting the best of him. They were eating him up. He didn't know what to do. And he'd come back and he'd meet with his friends to try to figure out what he should do and it was another lie. And, I, and as I kind of think about that, I think to myself, you know, how sad because I think sometimes what happens is that um, as Christians watching, I think sometimes it's easy for us to kind of think, well, maybe, maybe we can live lives that way. This duplicitous lifestyle of being able to say that, you know, I don't have to be truthful about things. Over here I'll say one thing and over here I can say something else or do something else from what I have been doing. Today, we have reality TV shows like The Bachelor, Bachelorette. I, I, I'm going to tell you, I just have not even been intrigued by those. Uh, unfortunately, though, the news from these shows is still broadcast to us, though. And, um, you know, you have people wishing they had a lifestyle and where romance was, is completely without commitment. And eventually, you choose one person in the end to give you a lifetime of joy and happiness except that all too often this kind of lifestyle ends with all kinds of evil thoughts being processed. I mean, is it a wonder, really? I mean, that's kind of what makes reality TV, I suppose, right? In a program like this where you have people who are talking badly about other people because of this or that. There's jealousy. There's all these type of things that are going on, these characteristics. And so all around us we have an ungodly way in which people think and live. And maybe the most tragic thing that we see in our culture is that people are living in such a way to mimic behaviors of violence that are seen in movies, TV shows, and in video games. And they've come to realize that they are going to be given their 15 minutes of fame at some point. They haven't gotten it maybe the way they've wanted it to, but they're gonna get it in one way or the other. And how sad when we just kind of hear about, you know, what happened down south. But that's, that's only the last one, right? How many others preceded that? How many more will come later? And when I just think about this, I, I think, you know, these people have said, you know what? I'll get my fame, even if it's through my own demise. And they'll kill themselves first for that. And I think, well, how tragic that is. Well, friends, here's a warning. People who live lives that don't correspond to reality are living dangerously. When we live a life that just does not correspond to reality, we're living very dangerously. The media, the internet have provided evidence of this fact. We would like to believe that it just means that someday people are going to grow out of it. But don't be deceived by that. I think sometimes that's kind of our hope, isn't it, for people? it's kind of a a stage, a phase for them. And maybe they'll just kind of grow out of it. The doctrine of this world will wreck relationships many times over to the point of no return. It's a sad thing when I hear that uh, grown children with their parents can't get along. It's been years and years in the making, hasn't it? And it doesn't get fixed like that. I think that along with that, 
with uh, relationships being ruined many times over to the point of no return. We see violence, greed, and worst of all, the spiritual atrophy sometimes that Christians fall into that leads to emotional stress and it leads into physical deterioration if it's not treated. And I think we've seen that with people. And this is the reason why Paul's so clear with Titus here as he starts out in the second chapter when he says, you need to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So we're going to put this into a spiritual health situation as well for the church, and we're going to think about what unhealthy doctrine does to believers. So the second thing that I want to um, kind of emphasize here is remember what is spiritually healthy. Remember what is spiritually healthy. In Titus chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, it says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And what we're going to see is that this sound doctrine of who our God is and what he does is to be placed into practice by the way we live. And in fact, it is to be followed by all believers. There's no position in life or in the church that is exempt. None of us are exempt. And it is to be a repetitive practice that we intentionally perpetuate with one another. Think about that. We are to intentionally perpetuate this with one another. And the instructions given to Titus here in these um, verses 2 through 10 to the believers, Paul states that godly characteristics, and he also states the contrasting behavior that needs to be changed in people. And, and sometimes what happens is, you know, I know that when we communicate, oftentimes it's not easy for us to communicate about maybe the things that are ungodly in one another. And Paul, he just says it. I think that's one of the reasons why I admire Paul greatly and just kind of reading through his letters is that he doesn't dance around the issue, does he? He usually comes right out and says exactly what he's talking about. And I think that's really just God's way of being able to say, you know what, I put my finger, I know what it is that is wrong. And we need to be able to respond to that. It's essential that we understand that in order for godliness to rule in our lives, the ungodly behavior must be recognized and dealt with. Ungodly behavior must be dealt with. So what Titus is instructed to teach was not something that was unique only to the Cretans, but something that is needed in men and women, young and old, including teens throughout the ages for all of us. Just kind of uh, in a... In a quick overview here, older men are told to be self-controlled and sound in faith. Older women, to be reverent and teach what is good. Young women are told that uh, really they're supposed to be taught to be self-controlled and submissive to your own husband, it says in the passage. Young men are to be self-controlled. And in fact, it goes on to say to Titus in this passage, as a young man in ministry, you have an extra responsibility to model and to teach in such a way that things are in alignment with what you and the way in which you live. 
and the way in which you're going to be teaching. There cannot be an inconsistency here. And from that, he's supposed to teach young men, as we'll see. Bond servants. Now, this is that relationship that we have with our employers. And it says this, be submissive and be well-pleasing. I just kind of look at the list and I think to myself, wow, this is pretty overwhelming because, as you know, a lot of these things overlap, right? I mean, man or woman, but then also to being an employee. And this is what God wants. These words, self-controlled, sound in faith, reverent, teaching what's good, submissive, um, well-pleasing. And then on top of that, if you're a leader, uh, uh, if you're leading other people, there are going to be more responsibilities as well. Now, as we look at this passage, I think there's uh, one other thing that I should just kind of mention here, and that is that um, there is an orderliness that is needed in the church here, an orderliness that is needed in the church. And the uh, ESV, the imperative command that Paul gives uh, here is for Titus to teach. And he says specifically to these groups. So while this can also, you know, we can talk about this in a general sense about what needed to happen for the people in the church, there's also the sense here what he's saying is, look, all of this is for the sake of the church. The church needs to be put in order. And that tells us something about who our God is. He's a God that wants things to be in order. He's instructed, and here's one of the main teaching points here, Titus is instructed by Paul to have the older women train the younger women. That's pretty good advice. Uh, Especially when you just kind of think about this, that um, Titus was a younger man, okay? Would it be good for Titus to be sitting in a room with younger women and to be teaching the younger women? No. Is that still good advice today? Absolutely it is. And I know that Pastor Rod has spoken on several occasions about how these things sometimes are ignored in churches and and it leads to big problems. And so this is a wise instruction that, that really needs to be followed today in our own context. And at Gateway, I find it to be a blessing to see this taking place though. And I'm sure that in this room here, what we, also, what we have going on is that we have older women that are teaching younger women. This is the kind of ministry that, that really needs to continue to take place. And I'm sure there's still room for more of this to take place um, in this kind of a ministry. And may I just say one thing to our young ladies. It's important for you to find a mature woman in the faith that can train you in godliness. That's what's important for you to do. When I look at this passage, I think, you know, this is what, you know, sometimes it's like, uh, well, who, who can I, you know, who's going to come and talk to me? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you need to be looking up and saying, who is it that I can get attached to? Who is it that I can go and speak to about how I need to be growing here? Ladies, as you mature in the word of God, it's your responsibility to teach what scripture says to the younger women, it tells us. I think that, you know, as we, um, as we kind of look at, in fact, at verse 6 here, um, and it says, and likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Titus is instructed to train young men directly, just as the older women were to train the younger women. A more mature man in the faith needs to train younger men towards godliness. And in Crete, Titus is a young man, but he's more mature than most of the older men in the faith. 
So he had an even greater responsibility since he was the pastor teacher that was leading. And all of this, you can kind of see how this lines up with what needs to happen in a church. And sometimes you have those situations. We are blessed, I think, here at Gateway, though, with the fact that we do have some mature men who are ready to mentor younger men as well. Um, let me move on and just quickly say this in closing for this, this portion here is that um, what he's asked to do, Titus is asked to make sure that he is really producing a spiritually healthy group of men and women in the church. Okay? And then thirdly, let me uh, go into remember what God's will is. Remember what God's will is. In verses 9 and 10, it says here, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And this section of Scripture is filled with exhortations to Titus and for the believers. And what we have a picture of here is that of training that needs to take place. Now, I've spent the majority of my life being a coach in one way or another. Um, in fact, it's what seems to come naturally for me. Um, I, I love to coach. Um, and I started when I was a kid. And I remember I, had, I have two younger brothers. Uh, the, the oldest of the two was three years younger than me. And um, what happened was that we used to go outside and play, and my parents were at work. And as we'd go out and we'd play, whatever sport it was, I had one thing in mind. Win. Just win. I was a Raider fan, okay? Just win, baby, all right? And uh, I would probably get my brother so mad at times because it just showed no mercy. And one day, while my brother was very upset, um, I had to talk to my mom on the phone while she was at work. And she said, can't you just let him win once? And then she said it. Or maybe you can teach him how to play. And I remember that it started to be like, you know what? That's really what I need to do. I mean, I, I enjoyed playing the sports and winning. I really did. But I remember that this kind of took a turn. And this, this allowed my life to take this new turn, and that was to begin to coach. And so from that point on, I, I remember I coached my two younger brothers. I would um, at times take and my cousins would be over, and we'd go and we'd play, and I'd teach them how to play. Um, when I was 16 years old, I got my first coaching job at a camp. Um, and I may have had some of your kids that are in this room, right? Uh, when, I was, uh, when I graduated from high school, I had the opportunity to right away, my first year out of high school, they asked me to coach um, JV boys soccer. And I was thinking to myself, you know, of all the sports, soccer, that was the last sport I even learned how to play. I didn't even like soccer, okay? But... <laughs> I remember that they asked me to do that. When I think about it, I think there must have been something that was there about the ability to be able to coach then that they saw in me. And, and I coached. I mean, I remember that uh, when I finally said, okay, I'm going to hang it up, I'd already coached from all the way through high school uh, varsity sports, and um, I think I was like uh, 35 years old or something like that, or actually maybe even less. And somebody asked me, you're retiring? You're too young to retire. And, oh, I've been coaching for like 20 years. I mean, it's, it's, it's been what I do. 
And just recently I was asked, I decided, you know, I'm not coaching anymore. And I get asked every once in a while to step in and to help. Well, what I think about this is that coaching is about training people. That's what coaching is. That's why it's easy for me in one sense. It's because I understand what I'm doing is I'm training people to replace bad habits with good habits, to build skill and adeptness, to build endurance. When an athlete embarks on this journey to be trained, they need to be encouraged. They need to be challenged. They need to be built up. They need to be exhorted because the day is coming when the opposition will look to defeat them, right? Well, let me just say this. In the Christian life, every day is like that, isn't it? And so we do need to be built up. We need to be encouraged. We need to be exhorted to go on and to do these good works. So thus, the adornment of Christ is needed in everything, showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The way you live life matters to unbelievers. You need to be fit. An exhortation is a counsel or a challenge that is given to others to build a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. And this was a big part of the ministry that the Apostle Paul had. He had written many letters of exhortation um, to various churches and people, and they're there for us to read today and to follow. Ultimately, we are to be ornaments that decorate the glorious gospel for others. Just think about this. This glorious gospel, and you're asked to be an ornament for God, to proclaim it. And this is what Titus was challenged with. Can you get these people into shape, Titus? This is what you need to do. Go for it. Get to work with it. Get going with it. So that they may also adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It seems like an overwhelming task. And if we don't have sound doctrine, though, that's being taught, then it's going to be really hard to do it. Let me just uh, conclude with a couple of thoughts here, and uh, a few thoughts here. One is that God is a God of orderliness. And he wants his people to live in the same way. And I find that to be true for the church. There needs to be order in the church. Secondly, sound doctrine will silence errors. And there are people out there who are teaching all sorts of things. But if there's sound doctrine that is being taught, okay, people will be able to avoid the errors. And then lastly, it is important for us to never shun good deeds. If we are working towards good deeds, it is because of the fact that we understand what the grace of God is all about in our lives. And as his grace just fills our lives, I, I think the natural response is, this is what's got to come out of me, our good works. So I pray that that's what happens in our lives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for your word that is so rich. And uh, Father, I pray that we would be drawn to understanding more of who you are and what you are doing through the gracious salvation that you've given to us. And we pray that ultimately that others would see how good you are through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh-oh, I lost myself.
Well, today I am going to speak on Titus 2, verse 1 and 2, and verses 6 through 8. But before we start, I'd like to tell you a story that was told to my wife, Lauren, by her dad. See, her, her dad went to school in the 50s, and he played on the Drake um, University basketball team. And while he was at school one day, a young man came up to him and asked him a question. He asked him, so Bob, what are you going to school for? Why are you here? And Bob said, I am studying to be a teacher. And so in the conversation, Bob then asked this young man, so why are you here? Why are you, what are you studying for? And he says, I am studying to go into the ministry. He says, look at my clothes. When you go into the ministry, you get paid well, you get the dress nice, and also you become a leader in the community. This young man never said anything about godliness. He never talked about serving the people that he would be shepherding. All this young man was interested in was, because I'm a minister, there would be benefits that would be given to me because I go into the ministry. And I think that sets the kind of the pattern that we have seen in Titus prior to. So let me just refresh your memory for the need and why we need sound doctrine. If we look back at verse 1 of 2, it says, But as for you, teach what is according to sound doctrine. But what was the need for this but? This but was a transition for what happened prior to. And so if we go back to Titus 1, verses 10 through 16, it says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision um, party. He says they must be silenced, for they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. They are not, they are not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. She says, this testimony is true. He says, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths or the commands of people who have turned away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You see, we see in this passage that there are those who are insubordinate, they are rebellious, they are defiant. And these individuals are deceiving others. They are teaching for selfish gain so they can get something for themselves. Paul reminds Titus that the Cretans are very known for who they are. 
he says that they are always uh, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. But, but, but Paul says this is true about these, these individuals. He again goes on to say that these leaders of the church have been devoting themselves to Jewish myths, following the commands of those who are turned away from the truth. Paul says that they profess to know God, but their lives deny him. He says they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. You see, the leaders of this church were not teaching sound doctrine. And the fruits of their lives did not produce godliness, nor could you see it in the lives of the people in their churches. You see, looking back at Titus 1.5, Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, that you may put what remain into order and to appoint elders in every town. He says, This is the task I want you to complete. This is the reason for the but in verse 2, in Titus 2, verse 1. Paul is instructing Titus to teach what accords to sound doctrine, to teach what is fitting, that is consistent with healthy doctrine. Titus is to teach what he has learned and what what has brought about change in his own life. Not something different. He is not to teach Jewish myths or listen to others who are telling them what he ought to teach. He is to teach sound doctrine. Let us look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. As Paul is speaking to Timothy, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, for which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions and um, constant friction among people who are uh, depraved in mind and depraved of the truth and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is the means of gain. We see that this teaching that is not according to sound doctrine brings about pride, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and friction, and a need for personal gain. It is not unlike the people living in Crete, as we have just seen. We see that in Titus 1, 6-10, that there were those who were teaching for their own gain. They were disrupting whole families. There was disharmony in the church of Crete. You see, it's important for us to understand that it is sound doctrine that makes a positive change in the lives of individuals. It is sound doctrine that we all need to be different. And without sound doctrine, there is no means for change. Let me remind you again the theme that we have picked for 
the book of Titus. It is grace-based godliness in the life of the church. This is important for us to understand that it's God's grace that enables us to be different. It is God that changes us into new creations. It is God that changes our hearts. Let us again look at Titus 2. And I want to start with the young men as we begin to go through this process because I think Titus plays an, a pivotal role in this. So let's look at um, Titus 2, 6. Paul says to Titus, urge the young men to be self-controlled. What does it mean to be self-controlled? Self-control means that you are able to exercise restraint over your own impulses, your own emotions, and your own desires. Let me say that again. It means that you are able to use self-control to exercise restraint over your own impulses, emotions, and desires. When it comes to being an athlete, each of us know that our athletes understand that there are things that they're going to have to give up. There are things that they are not able to do. There are foods that they determine that I cannot eat. And why is that? Because they are desiring to discipline themselves, to exercise self-control. They understand that they will spend hours upon hours upon hours perfecting the skills that they are trying to um, perfect. It was said that Michael Jordan would spend hours on the free throw line just shooting free throws over and over and over again. Again, understanding that discipline and self-control was important for an individual. But I want to let you know there's something more important than this type of self-control and this type of discipline. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27, says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimless. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself, should be disqualified. Paul says, you know, I don't waste my time just beating the air. There's a purpose for why I do what I do. He says, I discipline my body. He also says to Titus, I mean, sorry, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.8, for while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise 
for this present life and also for the life to come. As a young man, my dad bought me a weight set when I was in high school. And I've just enjoyed working out. And it's just been a part of my life that uh, I've done for most of my adult uh, adult life. But in recent years, I've been going to school, so I have not had the opportunity to work out. But I am sad to say that I was more concerned with the outward body than I was the inward body. I would spend days at the gym. You know, it was not uncommon for me to go to the gym um, every day. You know, I would take the weekend off, you know. But it depends. Sometimes I'll get up in the morning on Saturday morning and be bored, and I'm hitting the, hitting the iron because I was more concerned about the outward appearance. But Paul is telling us here, there's something more valuable than just taking care of the outward appearance. But I'm sad to say I didn't know that. There were things that were more interested to me. I was more interested in how someone might look at me than I was concerned about the inward part of me. So I wanted to take a time and look at a few individuals where sound doctrine was not evident. I want to show you the, the results of what that looks like. So the first one is sinful desires. And I want to look at 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 17. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when a man offered sacrifices, the priest servant would come while the, men, while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or quadrant or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did in Shiloh to all the... To all the Israelites as they came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me meat for the priest to roast, for he does not want boiled meat, for he wants the meat to be raw. And if the man said to him, Let me then, let me first. Um, burn the fat off the meat. And then he would say, no, I will then take it. He said, I will take it by force. Thus the sins of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You see, these men were more concerned about their own flesh, their own desire for what they wanted. They didn't want boiled meat. They wanted meat that they could roast themselves. So what about us? What is there things about us in our own life that we care more about that we are willing to sin to get? Let's look at sinful desires or sinful, um, the sinful indulges of the eye. And I want to look at Jane, uh, Judges 14, verses 1 through 3, as we look at Samson. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah 
he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me, for my wife. But his father and his mother said, Is there not a woman among the daughters of, the, of our relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Again, you see that Samson was more concerned about what looked good. He was more concerned of what he wanted than anything else. And today we live in a child-central society where our parenting is governed around our children. And this is very evident when you think about Christmas and birthdays as our kids give us a list of what they want and what they expect during that time. But see, I would like to let you know that we too, as adults, are not much different than Samson. We may not use those same words as, get her for me, but we might use words that are a little easier to digest. We may say to our wives, honey, if you love me, you would. Our children might say to us, I will keep my room clean if you will do this for me. Or I promise I will never do this again if you, and I know you guys have never heard any of these, um, but this may just be my family. Um, But again, we try to manipulate for what we want. Let's look at spite and the pride of life as we look at Herod the king. In Matthew 2, verses 3 through 4, the wise men were speaking to Herod the king. He says, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. He assembled all the chief priests and scribes and the people. He acquired, the, he acquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Drop down now to verse 16. Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that, in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And again, he allowed the pride of life to dictate what he would do. How about us today? Have we allowed pride and anger to rule us because we did not get what we thought that we should get? Have we lashed out at co-workers, to our children, to our spouse, all because we have felt that they have kept us from what we desired. Because our children, our marriage, our health, 
our career have not gone according to our plan, we are now angry and the pride of life rules our heart. Let us look at a, a modern day example, a shameless example. It was August 31st, 2013, where a group of teenagers, 300 of them, decided to hold a party in a house that did not belong to them. In fact, they held this party in the home of Brian Holloway, an ex-NFL player. As this was his vacation home, he was far away at the time, and the youth caused an over, uh, over $20,000 of damage in this man's home. They broke out all his windows. They spray-painted his walls. They scuffed his floor with beer kegs as they dragged it across the room. The carpets were soaked with beer, with liquor, and urine. In the excitement of the evening, they decided it was important for them to document this time, so they used social media to share it with all their friends. Now, you and I would probably say that these individuals were not exercising restraint over their impulses, emotions, and desires, but they indulge in their desires. So what about us? What are the ways that we, too, are out of control? What ways do we exhibit? indulgence in things that are not right. As a young man, driving was something I enjoyed to do. But I am sorry to say that as a young man, prior to marriage, um, I lost my license twice because of excess speed, tickets. Um, my brother and I would go down to the strip. That was back in the day where they had a strip. Uh, when the guys would uh, soup up their cars and they would just cruise the boulevard. And that was me. I would go out with my brother. Uh, had a great little car, uh, Cutlass Supreme, uh, that my mom gave me. <laughs> but it was a great car, and it was quick. It ran very well. And so we would go out to the strip, and we would, you know, position somebody and say, you know what, let's see what you got. Well, throughout that time, I lost my license twice. I was not a self-controlled person during that season. <coughs> Let us go back to Titus 2, 7. Paul tells Titus, show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound in speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In all respects, in everything that you do, when you're sitting with your friends, when you're eating, in everything that you do, he says, in all respect, Titus, I want you to be a model of good works. John Owens 
says, A man only preaches a sermon well to others if he has preached it to himself. If he does not thrive on the food he prepares, he will not be skilled at making it appetizing to others. If the word does not dwell in power in us, it will not pass in power from us. So he's telling Titus, you be an example. You, in all respects, be a model for good works. When it comes to being an example to others, how well are you and I doing? Can we say like Paul, be imitators of me as I am of Christ? Can we say that? Then in all that we do, be an imitator of me as I am following Christ. That I am a good example of what that looks like. Paul tells Titus to be an example for the men, the men to follow. You see, Titus was also a young man. The commentaries that I looked at, it says that the young man was generally from the age of 12 to 59. And I'm looking around the room and see, that's most of us. Most of us today would be calibrated to be a young man. He says, Titus, in the way that you live your good works, in the way that you are teaching, be a person of, a, in, of integrity, dignity. May your speech be sound. May your speech be healthy, pure, clean. And by doing this, you will put others to shame, having nothing to say about us. Who is the us that is referring to? The us is the church, that by doing this, others will not have anything to say about us in the church. I also see in this passage that Titus becomes or acts like a bridge leading them towards maturity as he points them towards older men. I think it was the year, um, probably 15, 16, no, probably 20 years now, I was in a church in Oakland, and we had a group uh, called the Disciples of Christ. Um, and in this group, we got together every week, and we studied Scripture together. We memorized it. In fact, during this time, we also had a drill team, and we would drill together um, as, we, as our pastor went out and shared the message with others. But during this season of my life, it was very helpful for me as we also got away every three months. You know, we had a friend who had a cabin, and we would spend time at his cabin um, every three months. And during this time, we would not even leave the room most of the time, leave the cabin. Um, we brought our own food. We barbecued. We cooked breakfast together. And we just sat around and talked about the Word and studied together. Um, my young pastor friend, he loved to play pool, so... We always had a pool table. The guys loved to play dominoes or cards or something. But yet we would spend time building into each other's lives. There were some that were older than myself. There were some younger than myself. But it was a time that we used to grow in, the, in our relationship with each other and in the word of, the, word of God. As we meditate on it, we studied it, 
we memorized it. And that was a very helpful time for me as a young man. But as we go back to Titus 2 and 2, we're going to look at the older men. And it's, under, it's important to understand that older men here is looking at 60 and above. And he says the older men are to be sober-minded. They are to be dignified. They are to be self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. You see, older men are to be temperate. There is to be a calmness about them. They are not to be easily flustered. See, this individual walks with honor and respect. He is able to rule over his emotions. Older men are to be grounded in the faith. They are not to be shaken by false teachers or false doctrine. They must be men who demonstrate godly love, who are steadfast and unshaken. His life is rooted in sound doctrine. They are, they are not to be tossed by every wind of doctrine, as Ephesians 4, 14 says. They are men who are able to give instruction in sound doctrine and who are able to rebuke those who contradict it, as we saw in Titus 1, 9. Let us also look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8. I'm sorry, 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to work diligently, to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue meaning moral excellence. And virtue, uh, virtue with knowledge, and with knowledge, self-control, and self-control, steadfastness, and steadfastness, with godliness, and with godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if, these, these, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's important for us to understand that it is sound doctrine that makes this possible. Without do sound doctrine, there is no salvation. There is no lasting change in a person li person's life. Paul says to Titus again, he says, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. If you look at 2.15, Paul tells him to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Yes, Titus, you may be young, but let no one disregard you. 
So what is the result of Titus 2.2? We have godly men who are sober-minded. They are dignified. They are self-controlled. They are sound in the faith. They are sound in love and steadfastness. But what happens when the church, when the men of the church lack these qualities? We have a church that is filled with strife, envy, selfishness, as we have seen already in Titus 2, uh, Titus 1, 10 through 16. Without sound, sound doctrine, who will be the shepherds of the home? Who will be the shepherds of the church? Who will be the example in the community? Who will teach the next generation? Last week, Pastor Rod asked the question, what is the aroma of the church? Let me ask you a question. What is the aroma of the church that lacks sound doctrine? Is it a sweet aroma or is it an aroma that nobody wants to be around? Sam Storm says, the Bible is meant to govern our lives, to fashion our choices, to change our cherished traditions, and ultimately make us more like Jesus. The questions for each of us then is whether the Bible actually functions in this way. Do we submit to its dictates? Do we put our confidence in its promises? Do we stop living in a certain way in response to its counsel? Do we embrace particular truths on its authority? Do we set aside traditional practices that conflict with its instructions? In other words, for the Bible to be of value to us, it must actually function to shape how we think, feel, and act, as well as what we believe, value, and what we teach. In conclusion, as a man, are you older or younger? Where are you when it comes to self-control and maturity? As a young man, who are you following? Who have you asked to help you along this journey towards maturity? the growing to be more like Christ. As an older man, who have you come alongside to help to be more like Christ? Who are you building into? Who are you pouring yourself into as you help a young man move in that direction? Let us pray.